Welcome to Bickering Peaks with Aiden and Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And this is Bickering Peaks. Mm-hmm. We're here to discuss... Lost Highway. Yes. Um, yeah, not one that... I, I mean, I've, it, it kind of falls from my mind. I don't really think really? of it as... I know, it's weird because it's not... Um, it's not Mulholland Drive. I think that's the pinnacle of, of Lynch's filmmaking for me personally. It's mm-hmm. my favorite of his films. So anything else kind of falls by the wayside. And Lost Highway, I just kind of forgot that it was there. And it's I've only seen it twice. So yes. it does make it a little bit tricky to remember something when you've only seen it twice, I guess. I guess. You've always liked it, though, haven't you, Aiden? Did from the first time we watched it. And the second time now, I enjoyed it even more. Really? Because I kind of understood what was happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is, we should mention, well, we'll go into the production details right away, but it is, it's a very odd film. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, there's not a lot of explanation of what's happening. It's very Lynchian. No shit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, it's very, yeah, it's very uh, Lynchian in the sense of like, there's just random things happening and characters appearing and disappearing and you know why do you why do you feel that's something that needs mentioning well because it's well because (laughs) the next the next film we're gonna do well wild at heart the last lynch film we discussed was not like that uh hotel room even kind of isn't like that it's a little bit like that there's really only a couple movies of lynch's that are that bizarre well and that's what's interesting is that this is the first of what uh, people have come to call the L.A. Trilogy. So uh, Lost Highway was from 1997 and then Mulholland Drive in 2001 and Inland Empire in 2006 kind of round out this trio of films that are set in the Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. And so I think they they don't just share um, locational similarities. Yeah. There are a lot of thematic similarities revolving around fractured identities um, perspective shifts and truth and objectivity and all that kind of stuff that comes into play in all three of them. And really, I mean, it makes sense, I guess, in that, in that way of looking at it, that Mulholland Drive is my favorite. Yeah. I really don't understand Inland Empire. <laughs> and and Lost Highway just feels like... Um, like a in preamble. my opinion, it's, yeah, but yeah. but it's almost like a lesser version of Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Like Mulholland yeah. Drive perfected what Lost Highway was trying to do. I'm yes. not entirely sure that that other people will disagree with me. I'm sure. Well, and but, it's funny because they they're not in production history. They're not similar at all because Mulholland Drive started off as a TV series that right. then turned into a movie. Lost Highway was designed as a film from the start. Yet they right. do feel uh, well, very and, similar and, and they achieve a similar kind of uh, impetus. And I think Lynch is on the record as saying that. I mean, Mulholland Drive, we know, was, um, he said, was supposed to be a TV show well, that... ABC paid them to right, produce and, it. Right, and originally it was supposed to be um, Audrey Horn going to L.A. But Lost Highway was the film, I think Lynch is on the record as saying that he was... Um, he realized after filming this or after making this or writing it that he hadn't left Twin Peaks and that this is set in the same kind of universe as Twin Peaks. So I think in that sense they are quite similar, too, because... They kind of share that supernatural 
um, quasi supernatural mm-hmm. uh, link. Yeah, and dualities but, and all sorts of yeah. yeah. We can we can talk about all that, which also come into play in Inland Empire, but yeah. we'll get there. So yeah, like you said, uh, Lost Highway was uh, filmed in, in like ninety five, ninety six, and was released in ninety seven. Uh, it stars Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, Balthazar Getty, and Robert Blake, who. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a conventional Lynch cast. Yeah. I mean, Bill Pullman has never worked with David Lynch since. I don't think Patricia Arquette has. Nope. Unless in yeah, a maybe commercial in this, or something. Yeah, something small. Um, Balthazar Getty did come back in Twin Peaks. Yeah. And Robert Blake is in jail yeah. <laughs> for murder. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't think this is the most, like say, conventional Lynchian cast. Um, but they did, there are a few characters throughout. Like Jack Nance is in it. Yeah. And um, there are curious choices. Marilyn Manson yeah. Shows up briefly. Um, Trent Reznor does the music, I guess, composed a bunch of original music. David Bowie did the opening track. Yeah. So, I mean, there there's some Lynchian links there. But the main cast is is uh, interesting. And I'm not entirely sure why he chose. I mean, Bill Pullman shocks me as a yeah. leading actor for this. Yeah. Um, I was listening to the Now Playing podcast guys, and they were talking about how Bill Pullman seems to be like um, an everyman. He's he's very average, and that's what Lynch was attracted to. And mm-hmm. that's very true. Yeah. Like, Bill Pullman is the kind of guy that you would not expect to have a mental break and and murder his wife, yeah. um, if that is what happened <laughs> in, the, in the movie. But um, so he's very, yeah, very average, whereas any of the other Lynchian leading men, with yeah. the exception of maybe Kyle McLaughlin, but all his characters are very yeah. weird, right? Well, yeah, like, but but very, you know, they have like Paul Atreides and, you know, uh, what's his name from Twin Peaks? Yeah, Dale, Dale Cooper. Cooper. Thank Jesus. You. Jesus, my memory is failing. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they are extraordinary characters. They are extraordinary leaders and natural, powerful figures. Well, and I, but I'm thinking of, of other characters like Jeffrey Beaumont, you know, yeah, average yeah, yeah, people yeah, who yeah. are thrust into extraordinary situations. So that's why I say Kyle McLaughlin might have been able to play this role. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to see Bill Pullman in it, mostly because I did only remember him. You brought up Independence Day. Yeah, obviously. He's Mr. President yeah, to you he forever. Was the, yeah, he's proto-George Bush. <laughs> you know, he's the president <laughs> you wanted to have a beer with. And he's going to fly a fighter jet and take down the aliens. But, yeah. but I remember him from A League of Their Own, which yeah. is like a romantic comedy kind of quasi-historical Well, and he has drama. a very small role in that movie. It's, I know, and that's, that's why that's it's weird that that's jumped, where yeah. my head jumped. But <laughs> it was like the only film that I ever knew him from because yeah. I loved that movie as a kid. So. Yeah, yeah. But either way, uh, to see him in this film, and he does a a, a, a pretty good job. And, and it's, yeah. But it's weird, too, because he's not as initially menacing as you would think well, that he could be. Exactly. And that, that's what kind of, I think it was a great casting decision, just because he does, he doesn't strike you that way. And then when the switch is turned and all of a sudden you realize he's a killer, mm-hmm. you're like, wow, this is, this is haunting in a, in a kind of unique way. And then mm-hmm. to watch him uh, at the end of the film, you know, kind of, bouncing around to this kind of evil incarnation yeah. of himself is really, really kind of well, and fun it, to watch. It plays really nicely opposite Balthazar Getty as... So, I mean, they're they're playing maybe the same, the same character, character maybe? maybe in two places or two parts or something. But they're like Bill Pullman plays Fred Madison, who we're introduced to at the beginning of the film. And then um, Balthazar Getty, about halfway through, about plays third, yeah. switches to... Um, Pete Dayton. He's this young mechanic. And uh, and Pete Dayton is very different from Fred Madison, even though ostensibly they are the same person, sort of. Um, <laughs> so there's this, like, 
this naivete, I guess, or something, an innocence to to Pete that yeah. is at direct odds to the jealousy and madness of Fred Madison. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what um, that works really well, just because if you'd had, um, I mean, Nicolas Cage or um, I don't know, like I'm trying to think who else would have played opposite. Well, even Kyle McLaughlin was still, nah, he was getting a bit older. He yeah, he would have, have had to play, play the Fred yeah. Madison character. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting casting. Patricia Arquette as uh, also playing two roles here. Um, she yeah. plays Renee. Renee Madison, Fred Madison's wife, in the first part. And then she plays uh, Alice, Alice Wakefield. Wakefield. Free water. Oh, my God. I don't know. <laughs> you just pick two words and put them together. It's like, Wakefield, noun, noun. Well, there we go. you know, Wakefield and free water. Well, things. waking isn't really a noun, but. I mean, wake, wake on, wake. A, on, a, yeah. on the see, water. See, on the free water. <laughs> Anyways. Wakefield. Yeah, yes. uh, playing, yeah, so playing two roles, the same actress, but very different appearance, but similar yeah. countenance, similar it's, feel. Yeah, maybe sisters, can't tell. <laughs> maybe it's the really, same person. Yeah, again. You really don't know. You really don't know. Um, and that's what makes it really interesting. As much as I, as I feel sometimes I'm bored with this film i did do we both did a lot of research for, for, for us for us for us we, i mean we watched two youtube videos I and mean, that is that is a ton of research <laughs> i listened to a us. podcast i read some essays you did more yes i, I mean and this is also the one i mean you're a big david foster wallace fan mm-hmm. um for all of his foibles and issues mm-hmm, yeah. throughout his mm-hmm. personal life i mean as a writer you you do like his yeah. writing and he did that essay um where he was actually on the set of lost highway maybe yeah. you want to talk about that a little bit and just briefly, it was it, it's a essay worth reading. I think you can. I think it's online. Now it is online. Free. We'll link it up in. Yeah, we'll send on SoundCloud. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's yeah, it's basically his kind of uh, analysis and and dive into what is what makes Lynch unique. And mm-hmm. this is this the essay where he you know created the term Lynchian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the thing that always stands out for me is his description of what Lost Highway is about, um, which will go nice segue into our description of the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he basically described it as uh, Bill Pullman kind of murders his wife, but it's not really clear he's actually done it. And then he's magically trans- transformed into uh, Balthazar Getty, who's a young mechanic who, you know, goes on a run from a bad guy and then maybe becomes a bad guy again. And uh, what's the the evil man? What's his the mystery man? The mystery man uh, is filming the whole thing, and that's kind of the whole <laughs> the whole plot. And I'm like, yeah, that's. And he was he was he wrote this and published this before the film even came out. So right. I mean, it's kind of a an oddity, and uh, it comes across there. And then you think, oh well, the cut film will make more sense, but no, it really doesn't. That was still <laughs> a pretty accurate description. So. Let's let's talk a bit about the plot sure. as we understand it. Sure. So uh, we we open with uh, Fred and Renee. We get kind of some glimpses into their their lives as a couple. They're actually um, the the setting for their house is actually David Lynch's home or one of his homes. Um, he designed the house. Apparently, designed all the furniture in the house for this um, film Sounds process. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very unique, but very California, yeah, um, looking modernist place uh fred madison is a jazz musician Mm -hmm. we don't really know what else he does that seems to be the only thing it's his job so and renee is um a kept woman i guess she doesn't really have any yeah yeah, she doesn't have a job she doesn't do anything outside the home um and there's jealousy simmering throughout the entire time that we see the two of them uh because fred believes that renee is having an affair um 
the very first thing that happens in the film that is that sets off the whole mystery is this intercom buzz yeah. that happens very very quickly at the beginning of the film in which Fred hears someone downstairs at his door say Dick Morant is dead uh, but there's nobody at the door yeah. so he doesn't really understand who's doing this or what it means and then after that Renee retrieves two videotapes on two separate days on their front step with the morning mail. Mm -hmm. And both of these, the first video shows, uh, it's a short clip of someone videotaping the outside of their house. The second video is of the inside of their house and them sleeping. Yeah. Uh, So they eventually call the cops. They think they're being stalked. They call the cops. The cops come and don't really do much at all. This is the bedroom. You sleep here in this room, both of you. This is our bedroom. There's no other bedroom. No. I mean, I use it as a practice room. It's soundproof. You're a musician? Yeah. What's your axe? Tenor. Tenor saxophone. Deep. Tone deaf. Do you want a video camera? No. Fred hates them. I like to remember things my own way. What do you mean by that? How I remembered them. Not necessarily the way they happened. And I think that's, yeah, that's really the crux of, um, if there was a thesis statement for the film, that would be it. That uh, you remember things the way the way you want to remember them, as opposed to the how they, they actually happened. happened. Yeah. Then after the, the cops have left, um, I think what we happens next is uh, they, they attempt to have sex, the, the, the couple, and uh, <laughs> it's very disheartening for uh, poor Fred. And he gets the tap on the shoulder, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, we just watched Seinfeld where George got the tap just made me think of that (laughs) and uh then afterwards he kind of bizarrely uh tells her about this dream that he had where he was coming home uh and he found her in bed but it wasn't her um and we see this we see his dream uh and it matches very closely with the uh the intruder's videotape uh and we kind of watch him come up and then she screams and holds out her arms to defend herself presumably then uh in his dream he's attacking uh renee and it's uh, and then it's kind of just left at that. Um, then after that, we go to a party scene, right? Um, and this is where things really start getting kind of crazy because we get you get so Fred meets up with this guy at the party, um, separate from Renee, who tells him that they've met before and that he's at his house right now. And then he gives him a cell phone and says, "You don't believe me? Call." And he calls, and the guy right. is on the phone with him, but he's standing in front of him, and it's very disjointed and strange and disorienting because, you know, if 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 you've never seen Mulholland Drive or you've never seen a, a lynching film, like you you how how can somebody be in two places at once how is this happening um when the mystery man leaves uh fred talks to another guy i don't remember his name andy andy yes that's right and uh 
And Andy says, oh, I don't know who that, because Fred asks him, like, who's that man? Oh, I don't know who that is. He's a friend of Dick Laurent's. And that's um, the first time we hear Dick Laurent's name mentioned. Mm -hmm. And Fred's like, but Dick Laurent is dead. And and it's it's very strange because we don't really know at this point, like, what is, what is, well, we never know what's happening. But but it seems like uh, they go home from the party and the next morning... Fred wakes up and there's a third tape and the tape shows him murdering Renee or after just having murdered Renee. And he kind of panics and freaks out. And then immediately um, we're in jail with him and he's being interrogated interrogated very violently by the cops who initially were there to help him with the stalker case. And then he's in jail and he's on death row for the murder of his wife. Um, And, and throughout his time that we see him in prison, uh, he is complaining of headaches and yeah. um, he's collapsing. And, yeah, and the doctors just have, not well. Yeah, yeah. So it's no surprise that at one point, um, through you know, after all of this has gone on for a few days or weeks or months or however long, uh, one of the guards comes to do a cell check, and these are solitary cells. They're you know, you're on death row. There's no even when you're outside, you're by yourself. He looks in and Fred Madison is gone, replaced by Pete Dayton. Yeah. So. So this is when there's an abrupt <laughs> shift in the film, obviously, and it, we basically pick up with Pete's story, mm-hmm. um, such as it is, which we don't really know at this point at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But basically he is about 21, 22 or something like that. At least 24. 24, but... yeah. Um, but he lives with his parents. His parents come and pick him up. Yeah. Uh, his parents are played by, his dad is played by. Uh, Gary Busey. Gary Busey. Uh, and yeah, so his parents pick him up. Uh, take him home. He kind of recovers a bit, uh, but it's really not clear what's going on. He's, he, he has like this massive malformation. Well, on his, in his face, and... it seems like it's bad and it slowly gets worse. It's like it's like um, after a metamorphosis has happened yeah. and you haven't quite formed into your true self yet. Yeah. Slowly he comes to be, you know, look the... like Balthazar Yeti yeah. again. It's yeah. weird. It is very strange. But... but he doesn't remember the initial incident. And that's something that plagues him throughout the, the whole of this. You know, well, his parents talk about yeah. it. His friends talk about what happened to him and he doesn't remember yeah and we're not even sure how the timeline of that matches up right. is it the same night that he became uh fred, fred, fred or is it Pete? the night that fred killed uh renee it's or is really it some not, other night entirely yeah the, it's really not clear so the timeline again is all skewed and, and discombobulated as usual but yes uh pete uh meets up with some friends goes out with his girlfriend uh they hook up he also returns to work mm-hmm. works as a mechanic as Lindsay mentioned uh and there we meet mr Mr. Eddie, Eddie. Uh, which is... Uh, Robert Loggia's character. Yeah, and he is the typical gangster uh-huh. of, of uh, Hollywood fame. Um, and he loves... Uh, yeah, Pete. Pete's the only guy who can work yeah, on his the car. only guy who can work on his awesome Mercedes 1400 horsepower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he... Uh, which apparently is really fast. I don't know anything about cars. Yeah. Is that really he, fast? He, he would 1, get about three miles per gallon if he had 1400 <laughs> horsepower. Uh, but anyways, he... Uh, yeah, he takes... Uh, uh, Pete out for a drive to fix up his car and we see this hilarious and bizarre uh, shakedown from the, the the bad Mr. Eddie. Uh, someone tailgates him and he basically beats him up and gives him a lecture about safe driving. It's my favorite scene in the whole movie because it, it is so crazy and funny and odd. Yeah. Um, and then uh, basically after that he meets Mr. Eddie's girlfriend, Pete right. does. 
Uh, again, Alice Wakefield. Alice Wakefield, yeah. again, played by uh, Patricia Arquette. This time in a blonde wig. Yes. A brown wig. Yes, very and bad wigs, by the way. We, yeah, they're pretty <laughs> obvious they're wigs. They're really but... terrible. Um, but it really emphasizes that she's, you know, obviously a There's something artificial about it, exactly, right? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so then they start up an affair. Uh, and slowly Mr. Eddie kind of figures out that his best girl is having an affair. And he kind of, it's hinted at that he, he kind of knows it's going to be, it's uh, Pete. And then kind of the circle closes. So Pete uh, and Alice decide that they're going yeah. to, now that their lives are at stake, they're going to escape Mr. Eddie and make a, a, a pact, I guess, to uh, go and get money from one of Alice's friends and run away together, yeah. get passports and leave for wherever, just so they can be together and away from Mr. Eddie. So they put this plan into motion and... It turns out that the guy that they're that they're going to see is this guy Andy, the same guy that Fred Madison saw at the party in the first half of the film, and there's kind of a scuffle between Pete and Andy. I can't remember if that happens before or after Pete learns that Alice is, no, has been roped into this uh, porn. Yeah, film no, it's after. Thing. Yeah, so Alice okay. has been yeah uh, kind of coerced or blackmailed yeah. into performing uh, pornography mm-hmm. for maybe even with Mr. Eddie yeah. uh, as part of his like coterie of, of starlets, yeah. I guess, yeah. which yeah. seems to be a little bit of a commentary on Hollywood and, yeah. and porn and just <laughs> casting in general. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Pete and Eddie have a fight and Andy dies uh, very violently. And this is when things kind of go off the rails for Pete in the same way that they went off the rails for Fred. Uh, Pete sees a, like a photograph of, Alice next and to Renee, Renee and Eddie and Mr. C right. Eddie, or Mr. Eddie and Andy. Sorry. Right. And then he's asking Renee or sorry, asking Alice. See, I'm doing it too. Yeah. Asking Alice about it. And she's being kind of cagey and they, they eventually escape together and they go to this cabin where they're going to meet the guy that's going to give them the money or exchange the, the things that they've stolen for money that they can use to escape. But first, uh, Pete has a psychedelic trip down a hallway upstairs in the, the Andy's house, which is where he sees, he opens a doorway and uh, there's Alice having sex with a devil, maybe, in like this red lighting. Yeah, no, I don't think any of that is happening in real life. Yeah, yeah well, in his mind, right? <laughs> but, but we'll mention it because uh, we come back to that hallway right away. But, but yes. when they get to this cabin, Alice gets very cold, and they do have sex again, but she she tells him, You'll never have me. She walks into this cabin, and when he follows her, he finds the mystery man in the cabin, which, um, but no Alice. Alice yeah. isn't there. And at that point, oh, no, he's no, now... No, 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 sorry. He, he, right before that, he'd actually turned back into yes. Fred. So Fred is the one who walks into the cabin and finds the mystery man, and the mystery man chases him out, into his car while he's filming with his with his big handheld, camera, handheld yeah. video camera. Yeah. Um, Fred leaves and goes to the Lost Highway Motel, which is where he finds uh, Renee. Renee this time yeah. with Mr. Eddie. And having sex. Having Seems sex. consensual and yeah. fine. But he uh, kidnaps, I guess, Mr. Eddie and takes him out into the desert with the mystery man now and they kill him. Yeah. Well, it's, it's Mystery Man's not there initially. No. Mystery Man shows up to save uh, Fred, gives him a knife so that he can slash yeah. uh, Mr. Eddie's throat. And then, uh, yeah, and then the Mystery Man shoots and kills uh, 
uh, Mr. Eddie. But then at the end, uh, Fred is the one with the gun in the Yeah, Mr. Eddie is not even, I don't think Mr. Eddie is a real person at all. Well, we can talk about that. But anyway. Yeah, we didn't mention something important about that. We'll come back. Mention it. Oh, uh, at one point, the... the, there are cops trailing Pete after he mysteriously showed up in a cell for a Oh, yeah, man. cops have been trailing Pete the entire and, time. And they see uh, Mr. Eddie show up and they say, oh, you know who that is? Dick Laurent, basically. Right. Uh, so therefore... That Mr. Might, Eddie and Mr. Dick Laurent are, are the same. same. Yeah. Um, so then uh, after they've murdered Dick Laurent out in the desert, uh, Fred heads back into L.A., walks up to his old house and buzzes and says... Dick Laurent is dead. Um, therefore implying that, uh, into the speaker, of course, uh, therefore implying that it was actually him who told himself, uh, in the, the past, in the past, that Dick Laurent was dead, <laughs> um, which is just super confusing and just throws out any semblance of a timeline that makes any sense. Um, but then he gets chased by the cops, somehow escapes LA traffic yeah. and makes his way back onto the, to this highway. Um, and then he transforms again, perhaps, or is electrocuted to death or just has a light show go on in his car as he speeds away from... The cops, it's really not clear. And the credits roll. And the credits roll. So, I don't know why we had to explain the whole movie to you guys, because it really doesn't matter. And, yeah, and I mean, none useless, of what we're saying yeah. is very um, useful Useful at way. all. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's what happens on film. <laughs> yes. Now, what we think is actually going on here, I think we both have some different ideas about that. I think everybody who watches it is going to have a slightly different take on what's actually happening. But there are some, uh, so I like I don't even know where to start to talk about this. I guess Aiden, what's your interpretation of what the film is about? And I don't mean that in the sense like how we just did it. Well, yeah. But I, what does it mean? What is the meaning of what we're seeing? Well, I think the way I uh, immediately after we watched the first time, I googled it and I did watch a YouTube video or two, uh, and I read a couple essays and stuff. And the the easiest most simplest way and i think it's one that kind of works is to view the movie very similar in a way to mulholland drive where uh you can view the first you know three quarters of the movie as a dream sequence and then the last quarter as uh uh what's her name's characters i can't even remember the actress are you talking about mulholland drive i'm talking about mulholland drive right now uh so we can view that as the real story and then the first three quarters were a dream in this way you can view uh it being the real story is fred's story uh, Fred was jealous of his wife, who he assumed was cheating on him, so he murdered her. And then as he's getting ready to die uh, and be executed on death row, he has this dream, this vision of he looks up and there's a light. And what the light he sees is the story of Pete, who has a very similar uh, story to him in that he is also a murderer and um, but this one, he's less of a an evil man. He does he defends he's himself. Reacting to exactly. Them. He's trying to do the, the positive. He's trying to do good things, and bad things happen, and therefore he's also condemned to death. But it's it's not at all equal. Um, so the whole sequence around Pete, which is probably about you know a solid three fifths of the movie, maybe or something like that, uh, is basically just a giant dream sequence where uh, Fred's real life worries are played out in a more positive light. Um, in his imagined existence as Pete. Um, and then there's kind of uh, uh, a, the section at the end where uh, Fred shows up again is also something that really happened, but it also but it happened before the start of the film where he says Dick Ron is dead. So that's actually at the start of the film. He found Renee. He saw Renee cheating on uh, him with uh, Dick Laurent. So he murders Dick Laurent, feels kind of bad about it, but then goes back and, um, 
back home and watches Renee some more um, and then winds up murdering her and being condemned for death. All this being kind of tied together by that key phrase uh, uh, from the interview with the police officers where he says that, you know, I don't like to remember things uh, as they happened. I like to remember them as I remember them, not as they may have actually happened. Right. Um, So he's remembered this whole story about, uh, uh, you know, an alter ego where he's the actual good guy and you want to root for him as opposed to what Fred is, which is morally ambiguous and really just a jealous, jealous uh, kind of bastard um, who goes around murdering people he doesn't like. So that that's that's kind of my way of easily interpreting it. Um, and I kind of like that because it does kind of wrap everything up in a neat little package. Um, but I don't think it's the only way at all. Um, and I think it leaves a lot of things still not clear. So that that's my... Quick and dirty-ish. How do you view the movie? I don't even know, really. I think it's more... I think there's... It's less about what's happening and more about what it what it says about people's emotions and state of minds and, and things like that. So it's 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 a, a trip through someone's psyche. It's a trip through someone's mm-hmm. emotional states mm-hmm. as these things are happening. Because I don't think we can trust anything we see. I don't think there is a linear story that you can cobble together from this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth mentioning, we didn't mention this at the top, that this was co-written by uh, Barry Gifford, who was uh, worked on Wild at Heart. It, Wild at Heart was his, was his novel that mm-hmm. was adapted by him and Lynch for the screen. They also worked together on Hotel Room. So there's definite elements of Barry Gifford in this that yeah. kind of the similar to the way that a uh, hotel room kind of felt like watered down Lynch, watered down Barry Gifford. This kind of feels like the same. It's just not as powerful for me as Mulholland drive, which I feel it, it just lends itself much more easily to that mm-hmm. kind of interpretation because it's a singular vision. Right. Whereas this is two people kind of merging their ideas together and their the story of how they came about the idea like they each had um they originally was supposed to be another adaptation of another Barry Gifford novel and they threw that out and then they both had different ideas and they threw those out and eventually came to this idea of the lost highway being the the theme that they wanted to explore and I'm not sure that there's like a central um overarching theme other than this idea of what Fred says that he you know about memory and and how that is uh how he how fred wants to remember things versus how they actually happen i think that's very important and i think that's the whole thrust of the narrative so everything we see has to be called into question because we're not even sure i mean it, it goes beyond something like um the affair i've been watching the the showtime series the affair which is set up from the start to be you know half of it each episode is from one character's point of view and the other half shows the same events or similar events from another character's point of view and so each time you see half of that episode you have to wonder where the truth of the matter is or if the truth even matters at all because all we have and we've talked about this so many times on the podcast but all we have is what we experience and that is what lynch says is valid right it's it's what you know and so um it's it's truthy it's that truthiness idea that that there's no real objective truth so so lost highway really goes beyond that kind of simplistic or more simplistic way of breaking down 
truth into individual subjective realities. I don't even know if we know who is supposed to be the objective viewer at all. Is it us? Is it Lynch? I've heard some really interesting ideas about this being a metafiction that, that the mystery man is Lynch himself. And that this might be, I think that was on the, the now playing podcast as well. They brought that up that, um, that that is meant to be the filmmaker that that the mystery man represents a filmmaker because he carries around a video camera with him everywhere and he's in touch with technology he has a cell phone at a time when cell phones were extraordinarily expensive Mm -hmm. so i mean he's he's beyond above separate from everybody else like a filmmaker would be when making a film um and even the idea that that what we're watching is an artificial thing Right, we watched a, a podcast episode, the the What's So Great About That um, podcast episode about Lost Highway, mm-hmm. and that was the central thrust of Grace's narrative. There was that uh, what you're seeing is not even truth. It's um, that cinema is truth at f- 24 frames per second. The the uh, Jean Luc Godard uh, quote, which he was contrasting it with photography, but I think there's a, there's a certain truth there, or even that what Lynch said that, that um, the camera is the greatest liar. Right. So how can we even trust the filmmaker who's presenting these images to, to present them as, as anything um, truthful, or if there's, there is any, is there any truth to that? Plus the fact that, what we're seeing is is a celluloid or digital image of something that was filmed, something that was put together in a certain way in order to like, there's just so many layers of artifice to this. And I think that's why Petrush Arquette has such a noticeable wig and why um, it's like this construct. So, and that's how Lynch wants us to see it. And that's how Fred likes to remember it. Yeah. So, it, I don't think it matters so much to try and piece together what happened when and the timeline of things and, and all of that, because we really have to just understand what is this movie about? What are what are they getting at? And it, it feels like it's a film about jealousy. It's a film about, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. the, the madness that comes with with, you know, the breakup of a marriage or infidelity or, you know, and how mm. that affects someone. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that's, that's definitely a, a super valid way of, of trying to approach the film is to just look at it as to what emotions does it evoke? Especially uh, this is something I wanted to touch on is this is one of the least dialogued Lynch films oh, yeah. of all. I mean, it's up there with Eraserhead in terms of everything. The whole storytelling is visual. There's so many sex scenes that are just mm-hmm. like, you know, just pretty gratuitous and, and kind of linger on. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of unnecessary nudity and stuff. Uh, and it's just because that's what the story is trying to, to pull on those visual um, heartstrings, as it were. That's a terrible mm-hmm. metaphor to combine eyes and hearts like that. Um, but uh, so you can, you can definitely view the film that way. But I think there there is still enough of a narrative there. It's I mean, Inland Empire is the one that, that yeah, is yeah. the most abstract yeah. and it's the most discombobulated. Um, this one still has a narrative that you, you kind of want to try and follow. And I feel like that is still an element that he wanted to... Uh, incorporate into the story of that um, but at the same time I feel like he obviously purposefully uh, you know uh, made it impossible to track in any sort of clear linear uh, method so you know he's he's getting to that point but I feel like this is kind of 
an in-between step between a straight-on narrative and an inland empire where narrative really kind of doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Yeah. So you see where I'm going? Like I do. I just don't think if it's you like disagree. It's, no, I, I it's it's just that there's there is an there is a narrative, but I don't think it matters that that there is a narrative. I don't think that's then why I think have it's a narrative. so. Be, and that's the question: Why even have a narrative? That's why I think the film. Um, that's where it comes apart for me is that I feel like it wants to go beyond the narrative, but there's still too much. It's that Barry Gifford element. He's a novelist, so he wants to have that narrative. So he, it, it's like Mark Frost and David Lynch, the tug of war between the two of them in yeah. wanting to reveal answers, but hold back all the answers as well. Right. So there's, it's just more successful with Twin Peaks and, and that collaboration than it is here. And I, I'm not blaming Barry Gifford for this at all in any way, shape or form. It's just that, this experiment works better if the narrative is not as important. I think it's more important for what it reveals about the character, the character's interiority than what it reveals about, you know, when did Fred Madison press the button on the outside of the house to let Fred Madison know upstairs that Dick Laurent was dead? Like, it doesn't matter. And and trying to sit down and figure that out, it's a MacGuffin. It's not necessary. It's not required okay. to understand the central thrust of the film which is about the i think personally it's about the madness of of what what happens when someone doesn't trust their partner mm. even you know and we can talk about this like did he even kill renee is renee even dead um how much of what we're seeing is actually happening and how much of it is in his head mm -hmm. and you brought it up yourself with the the notion that fred's dream matches up with the videotaped yeah. image that he supposedly, he and Renee both saw on the videotape yeah. when they played it on their VCR. So um, is it is it objectively true because it was on the videotape? <laughs> like, does it, or yeah. is the videotape lying? Is the videotape even real? How yeah, is the videotape just an expression of his dream memory? Is it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. where are so, those lines? I mean, yeah, it obscures all those different reference points and points of view um, to create something that is really unmanageable to to look at it in a linear way you're yeah. absolutely right yeah um like i just think you're going to drive yourself crazy if you try and plot it out and yeah. i know there are people out there who would love to try and do that but i just don't think there's any there's any well point I, to I, it. I don't know i mean i think i agree with my first time watching it i would have agreed with you 100 mm -hmm. having having had someone do that trying kind of analysis and try to explain to me uh through the magic of the internet uh one potential way that the story could make sense, which I described in my mm -hmm. kind of analysis, um, I think then that can ex help explore uh, the the themes in a different manner. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just look at them in terms of what the the film as a whole kind of makes you feel and the the way it it, it tugs and pulls on different uh, levers of storytelling and uh, theme and and drama and uh, you know viewer response and everything. Um, you can view it just as a whole that way. Or if you try and apply this narrative uh, frame around it of Fred being the central real character and everything else being kind of fake, it, it just illuminates it a different way because then you're thinking, okay, this is the real world of uh, that Fred's lived in. Um, what is the juxtaposition of Pete's story tell you about uh, Fred's way of remembering sure. and stuff. And, and, it but, just I still mean, falls. There's still problems with that. Oh yeah, he, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's just it just it doesn't. So if you're gonna do that, I would rather there be consistency in the Fred plot 
Fred can't talk to himself in the past. Yeah. And like that, that, that really yeah. just, it's a fantastic thing. It's a thing that, that adds so much mystery to it to try and unpack it and figure out if that, if Fred is the real character, then Fred has to have talked to himself. Well, or it Doesn't could be he? that he woke up that morning, listened, and then he, he was like, oh yeah. Dick Laurent is dead. He was just remembering it. Like he didn't actually press a button. He didn't actually go and talk to someone through a sure. speaker. He's just remembering last night I killed Dick Laurent because he's been cheating on my wife or cheating on, or my wife's been cheating on me with him. I should have said, yeah. Uh, you know, you could view it that way. It doesn't have to be a literal explanation. It's just Dick is, or he's telling himself about the death of Dick Laurent. I guess. I just I think mean, it, yeah. it's just, it just weakens the film for me. If you look at it that way, it's not that I think it's wrong. It's just that personally, I think it, it just makes it, less interesting yeah fair enough yeah but well no and, and i mean the film is great for just presenting you with these it's very much like uh, twin peaks the return uh, mm. in some senses where there's just individual scenes that just like hit you so hard with um, a particular emotion mm -hmm. uh, whether that's comedy in the sense of the the uh, mr eddie yeah the, up the, the whole the, dark comedy thing yeah, about yeah. you know pulling someone off the road <laughs> kicking the crap out of him because he doesn't follow the rules of the, <laughs> the road. road yeah it's, it's very yeah. strange and, and <laughs> but hilarious. hilarious um but then yeah there's all the uh you know um there's the mystery elements about yeah who's dick Laurent, how is he dead there's the eeriness of the mystery man and the fact that he shows up in multiple places mm -hmm. and you know he seems to be an embodiment maybe of evil or something like that it's, sure he could be not real at and all that, that has been brought up as another um another way of looking at this film that the mystery man represents evil mm -hmm. and that when the mystery man is with Fred or talking to Pete, yeah. it's when they're closest to their evil desires or closest to the evil acts that they're going to commit. Or the ones that are haunting, that are or the ones scaring that are, them. Like exactly. Mr. Eddie's has the personification sure. of evil next to him because he's threatening uh, Pete, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. It's... So, and, and so that's interesting, but it, it, it doesn't hold water just because of the scene where Andy sees the mystery man. Unless that's uh, another kind of misleading scene and there's somebody else yeah. on the stairs that Andy thinks Fred is referring to yeah. and that's the Well there you know, are a couple whatever. on there, yeah. Sure. It's, so yeah. I mean that that could very well be yeah. um but either way. But but I think one positive thing to take out of all of this is that the film is very interpretable. That was not a word, and I am sorry for trying to pronounce it. Uh, but it's it open is, to it is very open for interpretation because uh, there are no clear answers. Uh, it does have all those um, those really intense scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, even something as simple as uh, when he sees the photo of Renee and Alice mm -hmm. together, and he asks her, "Are you both? Is this both you or whatever?" Yeah. And she points and says, "That's me," but she's not pointing at either of them. Like the way the camera. It's a very small moment, but it's like, is she pointing in between the two of them? Is she pointing at just Alice? Is if you superimpose the photo later on where it's just Renee, is she pointing at where Renee would be? And he's imagining these this split personality yeah. for her. Um, I mean, I think you can talk a lot about just Patricia Arquette's um, characters, uh, what they represent and how they operate in this crazy world. Um, and especially if you do buy into the whole, uh, uh, what's his name's? Fred's story is the real one and Pete's is fake. Because what does that mean about Alice versus Renee when they wind up kind of being similar in the fact that they betray the main characters that they're with? It's mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah. yeah.
But we've met before, haven't we? I guess looking at this in in the framework that we have been looking at these films through the lens of how they relate to Twin Peaks, um, there, like like you mentioned, there were themes of duality mm-hmm. and some of the supernatural stuff. Um, obviously, there's the red curtains in Fred's room, yeah. and there's there's elements like that that do harken back to this Twin Peaks universe. I'll say. Mm-hmm. Uh, which really does match up with if if Lynch is being truthful when he says that he feels Lost Highway is set in the same universe as Twin Peaks. That makes sense. Makes sense. Is there anything else that you can think of that uh, that really strikes you as um, either related to the Twin Peaks universe as it existed in 1997, which at that point consisted of yeah. two seasons and a movie, or that later became... Parts yeah, of the return. return. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I think those those themes. I think there's there's a bit of technology aspects as well. There there is a lot of uh, phone calls. Uh, it's very similar to what was in the pilot, even of Twin Peaks. You mm-hmm. know, where all this doom was brought about through phone calls, through teleco- or, uh, PA systems and stuff right. like that. Like uh, evil is transmitted that way. That's why he's the evil man has is on the phone call. You know, right? Uh, or the, always on video camera. It's it's almost like that. Yeah. That is a medium through which evil can be transmitted yeah. right and or mitigated in some way i don't know because what the mystery man videotapes and how he talks to him how fred talks to him on the phone even though he's right in front of him or the fact that that an intercom is what connects fred to fred yeah. in that declarant is dead moment um yeah that there's that there's some kind of technological distance mm-hmm. between two people, distance in in space, or in the case of Fred, distance in time. If there's some kind of time yeah. loop happening or something, mm-hmm. but that yeah, that is um, that is really interesting for the original series. The technology that's used in the Return is different. Like there's weird. Yeah. It's it's something that we described as like Lynch te- Lynchian technology. It's like Mr. C with his phone that can just magically disable the yeah. yeah the the tracking devices because yeah. he's just got an app for that or yeah. um, can text and the time stamps on the text that he sends are different Changing depending on which scene you're yeah, you're looking at. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, there's there's just weird um, technological. Things happen, but, but so it, it is, seems it is like consistent is... in the sense that yeah, that technology is kind of not to be trusted in some way, right? right? It's it's even I mean the only positive use of technology <laughs> I can think of in the return is uh, when they Skype with uh, Doctor yeah Doc Hayward Doc Hayward, and that's that's kind of it. Everything else is because Mister C okay. is is the. Uh, he controls electricity and therefore all electronics and therefore all computers. So, and everything, but, right? but that's interesting. If you look at technology and if that is something that, that we need to be cognizant of, then, you know, maybe there is more to that scene with Doc Hayward. Maybe we need to revisit that and look at that and say, well, is Doc Hayward lying? Is he yeah. being coerced? Is Are the airwaves being manipulated so that what he says leads, you know, Sheriff Truman on one, way, yeah. you know, or whatever, because that is that is important. Like it, there there does seem to be a distrust there of mm of technology and of technological gadgetry that it's able to do things for you that are you know the bad guys can manipulate it to do what they want with it but that 
implies that it's not a direct connection. Yeah. There's like, you know, like it's not you press a button and something happens, but that that press a button and the message could get diverted and end up doing something that you don't intend for to have happen. But it right. happens because yeah. evil has inserted because evil travels through the electricity. The yeah. Black Lodge works yeah, through <laughs> electricity. So, yeah, this this idea of not trusting technology mm-hmm. um, is yeah definitely consistent, I'd say. Very yeah. cool to think about. Uh, so in that sense, I guess we can't really trust what any scene in Lost Highway that would be technologically, which is all of them, which because is they were all much videotaped. All well, yes, <laughs> for the that's film, true. You know, and that's that is yeah. true. But but another interesting thing that I noticed about the technology, especially the video camera, mm-hmm. is just that um, not only that the video camera shows in Fred's instance what he saw in his dream. I think that is expanded even further when we have uh the when we when we do see scenes from the mystery man's camera they are kind of there's a distance there but it's also zoomed in and grainy and it's hard to make out what it is that you're seeing so what your eyes are seeing is not maybe not necessarily what and and you get that sense because film is not you know there's there's grains to the film and there's pixels on a camera and and colors have to be matched up approximately it's never going to be a true representation of of the thing you're seeing and that's kind of critical so it's not even just that somebody could you know evil doesn't have to change it in order for it to be dis not true yeah, not it's not accurate. true yeah, exactly. as it is yeah because it's not it's not an accurate portrayal and it's so, just one way of remembering it anyways exactly is, and that, yeah. that's the other point is that is that maybe all of this is just connected with memory yeah entirely it, yeah because i mean film is one way of perhaps remembering it but it might not be the most accurate it might not be true to what you remember it might not be true to well um any of it, really. You give five people a video camera you and you points. get five different points of view. You have, you know, depending on if you're the director of the film and you frame the shot a certain way, somebody else is going to frame that same shot in a different way. And it's going to be what they saw and it will be true to what they experienced. But it, it's not going to be objectively true. And I think that's really important to say. And that's why I like the metafiction idea that the mystery mm. man functioning as the director of a film. Yeah maybe as a stand-in for for Lynch himself or for filmmakers in general. I think that's really kind of creepy and interesting. So, I did want to, I kind of already mentioned it, but I do want to talk a bit about and pick your brain a little bit, Lindsay, about um, how women are treated in this movie Mm. uh, because there's only one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe two. Uh, So Renee slash Alice um, is a very interesting i mean like a she's brutalized to death as renee yeah. for sure uh, or at least you know visually we see the, a couple seconds of that um and it's implied that yes fred killed her um yeah dismembered her dismembered disemboweled her. her um but she is very much a, a woman in need of help right yeah. i mean that's i mean she's inland empire she's laura palmer she's you know every woman in lynch uh we and we've talked about this uh, in the past that this is a trope that he really relies on yeah. a, a lot. woman in trouble a woman in trouble uh and i just wanted to to see how you kind of uh interpret that because there's the other element on this one is i also mentioned is that there's a lot of nudity her sexuality is basically her only characteristic she's right. uh you know she's desired by pete instantly alice's 
um, because of how she looks. And they possessed by by Fred. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm possessed by I'm Mr. Possessed Eddie, by Mr. right? Eddie. And this is the thing that uh, you know, it's it. She's basically property. Um, she's treated as such uh, by Mr. Eddie in that that brief scene we get where you know he forces her to um, become involved in his business and mm-hmm. probably do the porn that way. Um, and th- this is the only movie where you know pornography actually comes up as far as i can tell in lynch's oeuvre yeah. um and it's interesting because porn is just you know videographed sex so <laughs> uh so what does that what does that say uh about lynch's take on um women and how they're used in hollywood uh in his own movies in some respect because if he is kind of the video mm-hmm. if he's the mystery man um and, you know, what, what kind of impetus does this put on him to create a woman that has some some depth? Um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, how Laura Palmer kind of forced him to come around and, and you know, try and dive into these female characters a mm-hmm. little bit more. Um, he doesn't really do that here. This is probably the exception to that. That's what I was going to say is that, you know, it's it's still women for the male gaze and it's Mm -hmm. still a pretty toxic male gaze right i mean mulholland drive and inland empire are are mostly driven by the women in the film Mm -hmm. and it's their interior lives that we're exploring and it's their feelings with few exceptions of of other scenes the winky scene for example or Mm -hmm. um uh some of the scenes in inland empire uh when the polish characters are talking and stuff like there's there's less of lord Ern's character in that scene but um, it, it's, so yeah, it doesn't really capture a woman's viewpoint. We don't really get to find it. Fred never asks her if she's cheating. He doesn't trust her when she, he asks her to go to the club with him and she says, no, I'm reading. And he can't believe that she would read. Like she doesn't seem like she would read anybody. What, what does it matter if she reads or what she's going to yeah. be reading? Like he doesn't take her at her word. He doesn't trust her. It's, it's, um, I think that's. I think if Lynch were trying to use this as a a means of making a statement about how women are treated, he's not doing a good job of it. I don't think he's trying to make a statement about how women are treated. I think that he does that. He would do that much more or does do that much more credibly and better in Inland Empire. Um, So it proves that he can do that. He can go to those places. But in this film, it seems to be at least how I interpreted it, it seems like it's a condemnation of this kind of approach that some men do take mm-hmm. where they they just, they get so wrapped up in their own egos when it comes to things. That's why I brought up jealousy so much because mm-hmm. that's literally the only thing that drives Fred to do this horror on onto yeah. Renee. And the idea of possessing someone explored in the the alice storyline that she shows up for this you know job offer and it ends up being pornography which is really i mean for all the good and bad that you could argue about pornography um it still is crafted exclusively almost exclusively for the male gaze especially in 1997 yeah right and so it's just too it's it condemns them that idea of the male gaze but it doesn't do it by illuminating the female gaze in any way or or at least giving you know some agency or yeah or voice to that so 
in it in that sense in in itself that is making a statement but it doesn't do it the same way that inland empire yeah. does or that um firewalk with me did or anything mm-hmm. like that so yeah i mean it is it is troubling to watch that just knowing that you know uh alice and renee don't really have any agency and are acted upon and when they do get agency when alice does anyway and she kind of uh turns on pete uh i think some people view her as a traitor and some people view her as as betraying pete in a sense but i kind of think it's it's a powerful move and a powerful that's that's the one moment that is really quite uh feminist i guess in yeah, a sense yeah. because the rest of the film uh, and, and maybe Renee's decision not to go to the club with Fred to stay home and read is is a feminist decision as well. Just because she says, you know, and, and I mean, I'm not a fan of bebop jazz. So maybe that's why I'm just like, yeah, I'd rather stay home and read myself, too, than go to the club and listen to Why you would you honk. marry a bebop jazz musician? Maybe he came to it late in the marriage. I, we have no idea what goes on in their, Jesus. In their relationship. Yeah. But but yeah, I, I think there's there's some interesting things going on there. But I don't think there's any kind of overt statement about how this should be uh condemned or anything well no i think i it's not like he's saying we need to value women's voices more yeah and this is why it's more like saying this is the male point of view and this is the way that it's kind of problematic yeah exactly it's like oh it's kind of sad for renee she got murdered well let's move on you know it's it's not a bad (laughs) thing it's just that that it's it explores this idea from a male point of view yeah whereas Mulholland Drive explores betrayal from a female point of view mm-hmm. and Inland Empire explores oh, being accused friend. of betrayal and and from a female yeah. point of view so and then yeah there's there's some interesting things there yeah but yeah what do you think I agree I uh I think it's it's messy I think it's it was an opportunity to make a bit more of a statement and um uh, well, the video that I'll that I will link to that did a did the great job for me of uh, exploring uh, and explaining uh, the film uh, does go into a little bit about you know how pornography kind of uh, affects women, but the the film really doesn't make any of that explicit. It's very much kind of um, it's kind of a very stereotypical '90s moralistic stance on pornography um, that you know doesn't have a lot of nuance for. Um, well, in positive aspects of it, if there are, um, but, uh, you know, it also doesn't really get into, um, how the film kind of, uh, uses that as a, uh, lens on how women are treated generally, because I think, I think your point is well made, Lindsay, that this film kind of approaches that, those topics a little bit, um, in a way that, you know, the Twin Peaks and Firewalk Me and and Inland Empire uh, go into much more depth it approaches them and then walks away mm-hmm. and i think that's a shame because i think uh renee and alice could have been a really interesting character so yeah i would have loved to have seen lost highway from their point of view and that's what <laughs> that's what i think we kind of get in a sense with mahalo Draven and the empire and that's why i think it's important to view them as a trilogy yeah. just because those themes are introduced in lost highway and they're yeah. not carried through to fruition but they're they're sort of simmering there, mm-hmm. um, not addressed directly, yep. and that's kind of interesting if you view these three films as as a trilogy.
So what's up next on the docket? Next up, we have Mark Frost's 1990s, late 1990s project, uh, Buddy Farrow. What uh, is Buddy Farrow? Buddy Farrow was a short-lived, there were only eight episodes aired, I believe. Uh, it was it was another cop series that uh, that uh, Mark Frost created, I think, for ABC, maybe NBC, I don't remember. Oh, no, it was CBS. Okay, um, one of The other three. one, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so it's it tells the story of uh, uh, Buddy Farrow, uh, a cop who's kind of... Uh, or private eye, I don't remember exactly, uh, who's kind of left uh, the business and gone off to Hawaii, I think, or California, and he's just kind of like living under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone finds him and pulls him back to, to save the day kind of situation. Hmm. Um, and then uh, it comes back. I've watched a couple seconds of it. Just It's on uh, YouTube, so uh, we can watch it there. And we'll when we do post about it, we'll obviously provide the links there. Um, but it seems a bit more comedic mm-hmm. than uh, definitely. Twin I'm Peaks. getting equalizer vibes from this a little uh, bit. Uh, it is. It is <laughs> eerily similar in some ways, um, except for I think it is much funnier. Um, OK, I think there's there's a more of an emphasis on the humor. And I feel like uh, it's very Mark Frost, David Lynch sense of humor. I mm. feel like even the way it was shot uh, and we'll see if this pans out next week or in two weeks from now but uh no more than two weeks from now uh yes we're taking a bit of a hiatus after this for a week we are going on vacation yeah um unlike our trip to paris we are not going to bring our podcasting equipment with us we're just gonna we're heading to the west coast we're gonna we've got a cabin in the woods we're just gonna camp out for a week and not communicate with the world with anything yeah we'll be communicating with the world but just not through the podcast so um yeah, but in, in, I guess, a month's time yeah. is when we'll be returning we'll with this. We'll come back to Buddy Farrow, yeah. And we'll see if Aiden's predictions about this have come, come true, true or not. Uh, after Buddy Farrow? Uh, I think it's uh, Straight Story, Simple Story. Oh, I yes. I never remember what's Straight which, Story. It's the Straight Story. Uh, and then there is a Mark Frost TV movie, and then we'll get into some of his later films, and then, of course, Mulholland Drive. Drive. And so there's still a couple on the docket. I think we decided we have like 12 episodes left or so. Something so, like that. Something like that. So um, we are here for a while, and we look forward to you joining us next time. If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter, that's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you.